from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize our impact on the world around us. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I am thrilled to share with you highlights from Michelle Obama's conversation with Shonda Rhimes, the powerhouse television writer and producer who just left ABC for Netflix. Obviously, Michelle Obama needs no introduction. They were the annu- at the annual Pennsylvania Conference for Women yesterday here in Philadelphia, um, but more on that soon. We're going to listen in as they talk about something that plagues way too many of us. A lot of women in this room talk about something like imposter syndrome, how they feel like they don't belong in the room, how they don't raise their voices to be heard, how it's difficult for them. That happens a lot. You and I are two people who don't feel like that. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I don't feel that way. And I know you spent time talking about why you don't feel that way. What is it about you that has always felt comfortable in any room you're in and comfortable raising your voice? Well, I can say, I, I can't say that I've always felt that way. We've okay. talked about that. I mean, it's something that you grow into. You know, definitely times when I was younger, it took some time to find that voice and to live life and have those experiences where you fail, but you succeed, where you try hard things and you exercise bravery and it works out, or you get a seat at the table and you realize that the people around it are no smarter or better, have no better ideas. So a lot of that just comes with life experience, right? right. Um, so some of that has, de- that has definitely developed for me over time. But like you said, that's part of what we've been talking about and thinking about is like how do we, how do we facilitate that in our, our young girls? What, yeah. what stands out? And I think for me, one of the things was my childhood having parents, and and I mean parents, mother and father, who always thought that what I had to say and my brother had to say was important. Right. Um, They made room for our voices at a very young age. And I don't mean in any symbolic way. I just mean sitting at the dinner table, really listening to what we had to say and laughing at our jokes and allowing our opinions to come into the conversation, you know, not always shushing us. You know, even when we didn't say things as right or respectfully, maybe, because we were still learning how to do that. We were never shushed. We were never told kids are supposed to be seen but not heard. And, and when I think about it, it wasn't just my mother and father, but it was my extended family, too. I mean, I lived in a family that loved kids and loved the voices of children. So when I think about what sometimes is missing for young girls, mm-hmm. for example, is that so early in our lives we're shushed, yes. you know, so, and not just directly shushed, but sometimes we're treated a little too precious, preciously. You know, we may have a father that loves us, but he treats us like a doll. You know, he doesn't, they don't treat us like real beings and equal partners. You know, I, when, when my father taught my brother to box, at the age of seven, he bought me a little pair of boxing gloves too, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was important that we did things, even though I had an older brother, that we were on par. If he had to learn how to box, so did I. If we were playing catch, I was going to be playing catch too. I wasn't, I was loved dearly by my father, but I was never so precious 
that he didn't cherish. think that I could be in there right at the table. And I think those little things, you know, those, those small things that we take for granted, we think it's just enough to love a girl. No, you have to treasure a girl, you have to respect her, and you have to give her power at a very young yes. age, because she's not, not going to show up like that if and she's not ready. make that that's part of what, her, what she's made of. Exactly. That power is expected and part of her versus the be nice, be kind, be sweet. And it's okay to be angry. Yeah, you know, there, are, there are a whole set of emotions that sometimes are, you know, we, we're, we're afraid when our daughters show anger or discontent or mm-hmm. frustration. You know, we're always, cross your legs. There are all these rules that slowly suffocate young girls. Yeah. And I don't think I had a lot of those, those boundaries. Now, once you get out in the world and you got, get out of the boundaries, <laughs> the comfort of your family, your neighborhood, your community, yeah, yeah. Then you start getting the messages that try to shut you down, but, and we all get those in very yes. subtle ways. I call them those small cuts that we experience, that women, I try to explain this to my husband, to men all the time, that women, we are so vulnerable, that we are, we are cut, those little, that some of the cuts are thin, they're paper, paper cuts, like, yeah. you know, some man oogling at your body as you walk down the street. You know, maybe that feels minor, but that, that, that does something to you. Or the teacher that told you you weren't good enough or, to, you know, told you to put your hand down or you noticed that you never got called on. Small cuts. And then there are the deeper cuts, like you were actually physically abused. Mm-hmm. And when you think of the percentage of women who suffer from some kind of physical, emotional, or verbal abuse in their lifetime, those cuts are deep. You know, uh, or, you know, when you're definitely mistreated on the workplace and you have to put up with ugly talk and bad behavior and you just silence yourself. Those are cuts and they and they last and they leave scars. And a lot of times the ability to push through those cuts, which each of us have suffered, it's because of that foundation we had coming up. You know, that whole notion that I know I'm better than how I feel right now. Mm-hmm. Because somebody told me that a long time ago, but society certainly doesn't help. <laughs> no, not with the images they put out, not with the messages that you're given. I mean, I remember being told I was too loud in class. Mm-hmm. I asked too many questions, and I raised my hand too much, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous given the fact that one of the problems is that girls don't raise their hand enough in class, they don't ask enough questions. Yeah. That was the problem. I, was, I asked too many questions. Mm-hmm. And... For children, to tell somebody they're too curious, Mm -hmm. they're trying to learn too much, is appalling. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of kids, there's there's an age at which that silencing starts to happen. Yeah. Well, the thing that we cannot forget, and and, and this is what makes me sad about what happens in in this country around education and what we do do to our children, is that children know when people don't believe in them. Yes. When they're not being invested in. I mean, we try to pretend like, you know, the inequalities in education, that somehow kids are like shuffling through. And kids know when things are different for them. You know, they know when they're being quieted, when they're not being treated fairly. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of shame on us as adults not to know that when kids aren't in good schools or when they have a bad teacher or when somebody says something crappy about them or when they're not invested in, that somehow... They don't know. They know, because I knew as early as second grade, when I was in a bad classroom, 
I knew it as early as second grade. I was like, this teacher doesn't even care about us, you know? Yeah. Now, I had a parent that fought for me, but when I think about the kids who don't have people fighting for them, yet they see what I saw, which is these people don't care about us, and that happens a lot to minorities, it happens a lot to women. Mm-hmm. Those are the cuts that I mentioned. Those are the little cuts. They start as early as seven and eight and ten. Um, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that that's what we do. So we can't look up at women and go, well, why didn't you raise your hand in a meeting? Right. It's like you want to say, don't you see all these cuts on me? <laughs> you look at my scars. You wonder why I'm not brave and I can't speak up. We have to stop pretending like we're not hurting our kids because we do it. Um, but I think you and I, we were fortunate yeah, um, we were very early fortunate. on to have people who loved and believed and supported us. And we have to do the same for, for kids in our lives as, as much as we can. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think the more you step into those roles and the more you try and the more you're in those rooms, the less difficult it becomes and Absolutely. the more you realize you belong. And even when you make mistakes, you know, there's a space for you. And I think it's very hard to find a space for yourself when you don't believe that those rooms exist for you in the first place. No, it's true. And a lot of, a lot of power and bravery is practice, mm-hmm. you know, and some of that is taking the risk to try to be at the table. And then when you're at the table, taking that first risk to open your mouth and maybe be rejected. I think sometimes we as women, we don't want to feel that rejection. Right. You know, I, th- I, th- I, see that in, um, <laughs> I see that in men. I see that in my husband, my brother. They fail all over the place, and they're good with it. <laughs> Just like, yeah, yeah, I was wrong again. It's like wrong all over the place, you know. <laughs> but we as women sort of feel like we have to get this right. We have to be perfect all the time before we can even step in. You know, it's hard to lean in, you know, if you're worried about not getting things right. Um, and I think we worry too much about that. Do you think you have, that women in general have less chances to fail? You know, you fail once, people start labeling you faster than they'd label a man ever. Absolutely. I, you know, I think that's true for women, minorities. I think the bars are different, you know. I mean, yeah. we, we experience that all the time. We experienced that over the last eight years. <laughs> you know, I joked when I was on the campaign trail that the bar just kept moving, you know. <laughs> like, just like, whoa, whoa. You, you meet it, and then the bar would change. Yeah. You know, and, you. and we're seeing that now, quite frankly. The bar is... <laughs> I mean, that bar is going places. It, it, is, it is amazing, amazing to watch. But I want women to watch this. You know, I want you all to pay attention. <laughs> because this is what happens when we don't stand up. You know, we we give our seats up to somebody who's supposed to be because of these stereotype notions of what we think power and success looks like. We've sat at tables with people like that. Oh, yeah. You know, you want to talk about what what was the syndrome or what was the... Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. You want to talk about some imposter syndromes? I've seen imposters at a lot of tables. Yes. You know, and if when you're at the table and you realize, oh, you are a fool. And I'm worrying about raising my hand. <laughs> Look, I have been at so many tables with so many fools Absolutely. who were imposters. But <laughs> but shame on us 
if we sit by and let an imposter talk us down. Yeah. You know, shame on us. Because at some point when you know you're right, you know what's right, and then you don't say anything, you know, you see wrong happening, and you sit by quietly because you're afraid to fail or you're afraid to... That's what I want to challenge us as women to be, is to, you know, is to speak up in all the tables that we're in. Because if we don't speak up, our voices are never, are never involved in the process of problem solving. And we don't get to the right answers without our voices. Do you do this for the women who work around you, who you work with, the younger women or the women you Oh gosh, we have these this? conversations all the time, all the time. I do too. All the time. Now, I have a heavily female um, staff, so we run things here. Poor, the poor guys at yeah. our table. But I, you know, you, you still see it. And, you, you know, I, I spend a lot of time mentoring, coaching, you know, women in, in, in our office, even in the West Wing. And, you know, at, when we were in the White House. And there were still women who complained about not being included but weren't necessarily willing to push to get in, you know. Um, so I am constantly telling young women to speak up, to talk. You know, don't waste your seat at the table. And if you're scared to use your voice, then you got to get up and let somebody else in there who's going to use it because we yes. just can't afford for you to be afraid to fail. Yeah, to waste the spot. Right, right. But you also have to create the environment where people feel comfortable. And then that, you know, and, and that's what I know that our organization, you know, our, yeah. our, our environments do. I try really hard to make mm -hmm. sure that the women who work there, if I say, what do you want to be to a young writer? Mm -hmm. And I did this once, and one of my young writers, she's a young black woman, she was lovely, she's really talented, she said, I hope one day to work for, a, a, you know, like be a co-producer on someone's show. And I stopped her in the hallway, and I said, don't you ever say that out loud to anyone yeah. ever again. When someone asks you what you want, you say, I want my own show. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you get something. And it's that fear, I think, that happens. Yeah. And she was, a, she was a, but, but what if that doesn't happen? And I said, it's never going to happen if you don't say it out loud. Right. And men don't even ask that question. <laughs> oh, God, What if no. it doesn't happen? And I don't want to say all men, but a lot of men don't ask that question. What if I get it wrong? What if it doesn't work out? And That's what we do. That's, that is a behavior and of our gender. And I don't think gender. it's an insult to men. No, I think right. men just know. That's right. It or is, feel comfortable, have been right. made to feel comfortable just leaping. That's how they've been socialized. Happens. Yes. You know, you're supposed to compete. You're going to lose. I mean, if we don't even play games, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, that was the other thing I realized when I was younger. Sports, even though I am a closeted jock, mm -hmm. that wasn't something that was available to girls in my generation. Right. You know, there were sports, but Title VII hadn't really done its job in the way that it's done for my girls' generations. Mm -hmm. But there's a practice that you get by just competing, you know, and oh, yeah. playing and losing and recovering from it and trying something and performing on stage on a team or mm -hmm. alone. And, you know, if we're not, you know, engaged in that as young kids, I think boys get to practice that. They, yeah. they practiced it a lot more. My brother, who was a basketball player, competed every Saturday. Right. Instead of being on the court, where was I? I was sitting on the bleachers with the other girls cheering, you know. So there were, those were opportunities that I missed to practice competing and loss and, 
and having aspirations and the whole, the whole gamut. So Billie Jean King's always quoting that, that statistic that the more women who occupy high-level positions in companies, I think it's like 87% of them t- tell her that they um, competed in a team sport mm-hmm. at some point in their lives. I can believe that. Which makes a big difference. Yeah. 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 I played the oboe. I didn't <laughs> The oboe. Sport. It's a very competitive uh, instrument there. I was in the marching band. Well, Mark, that was good. You're out there yeah. carrying your oboe. We mar- well, the oboe. Roughing it up. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, get involved in something. I just moved to a company called Netflix, which uh, I joined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bitty company called A little Netflix. company. They're pretty good. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. they have this idea that hard work isn't what matters. Mm -hmm. It's the quality of the work, not the quantity. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to see you at work from, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or Mm -hmm. midnight or whatever. They just want you to come in with quality work, Mm -hmm. which is pretty controversial. I mean, I really like it, but it's pretty controversial. Mm -hmm. What do you think of it? What does that mean for you? I I think it's a great idea, and, and it makes so much sense. You know, I mean, and we do this because that's one of the problems, I think, with our education system. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't individualized. That's a challenge. I mean, it's hard to do when you're educating millions and millions of kids. Mm-hmm. But we see it in our own kids. Our kids learn differently at different paces. It doesn't make one smarter or brighter. I think it's one of the things that keeps more girls out of STEM um, because I think there are some girls that learn differently. They learn at a different pace. And who cares how fast you get it done if you get to the right answer? And I think work operates under that same old theory that time in somehow means something. But we've all worked with people, right? <laughs> we've worked with people. And you know how people <laughs> can be. But you've seen people who could be at the office all day and get absolutely nothing, nothing done. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're there. They're, they're showing up. But they're on their computer. Or, you know, I fa- and I found that I was the most productive when I was in a flex situation, when I was a vice president at the University of Chicago Hospitals, I ha- had both kids. Barack was in the Senate. Mm. Um, he wasn't home, mostly during the week. My day would be, I got up at 5 in the morning to work out. My mom would come over. There's, I had a babysitter that didn't drive. Mm. You know, I mean, we, you all can relate yeah. to this. I, I hired a babysitter who couldn't drive. How but dumb was her. that? Yeah. So I would work out, come back home, take a shower. Mom would get the kids in breakfast. I'd get them in the car, do two separate drop-offs. Fortunately, the school was in the na- we were in the neighborhood where my job was in the girls' school was with the only reason why this was possible. Mm-hmm. Drop them off, get to the office, walk to, from the parking lot because I had to park far, had to get work done <laughs> in time for pickup to get up, go sit in the line, get them back home, and come back to work, and then go back home for dinner. And one of the things I told my boss, the president of the hospital, was like, do not check for me for needless meetings. I do not have time for that, you know? I will, I will be getting work done, but if you are looking for me to show up and sit in a bunch of meetings to make you feel good, I was like, I can't do it. I am working my butt off, yeah. but if you're looking at me to, to look like the guys who are sitting next to me who either don't have kids or have wives that do all this sort of stuff, yes. and you're going to measure me against this guy, 
you know? But that was part of me using my voice because I didn't even take that job, but without the clarity and expectation that given where my life was, that, he w- that they would get product, but they would have to get it in the way I delivered it and not the yeah. way they thought it should be delivered. And that was, that was the first time I actually demanded flexibility and not a cut in salary either. No. Because one of the things I learned, because I tried that whole flex thing, part-time thing, where you basically just get gypped, you're working your butt off, mm-hmm. and you're getting paid half as much doing the same kind of work with the same kind of babysitting costs. That, oh, I did that once, never again. No. Um, so, no, I, I, think it's, I, I think it's a great idea, and I think it's the future, and it's the, the, the only way that you're going to ensure that you keep quality women, and, I, and it's not just true for women, but people who care about their families and family yes. lives. At some point, we've got to create a different definition of what it means to be successful at work, and I think Netflix is doing a great job. How do yeah. you feel about it? Um, I just thought it was wonderful, and you know, we're not necessarily under, the, uh, under all the practices of their company, but the minute I read that, I thought that's definitely something we're adopting. Yeah. You know, we have to figure out a way to make people feel like they don't have to be on all the time. Yeah. I've already told people they, know they shouldn't be on their phones after 7 p.m. and that I don't want to hear from them on weekends, and so they don't, shouldn't feel like they have to try to do work on weekends. Right. It's sanity. You have children. But that's also a product of using your seat at the table. Yes. Right? Because that's the other thing. that there, there are women like us who have leverage to do that. But the vast majority of women don't have the leverage to do that. No. You know, if you, you, you don't have a job, if you don't have a job that allows for flex, if you're a teacher, a bus driver, a nurse where you're working a shift, it, it, it is harder to negotiate that. But okay. for the women in the room who, you know, are at the, in those C-suites and at those tables and talking about human resources and they're in the conversation, we have to be the ones that are making those arguments for the others who don't. It's an obligation, I feel like. You have an obligation yeah. if you have a voice to speak up from your perspective. Or give the seat up and let yeah. somebody else who's going to, you know, fight the good fight, let them have the seat. My favorite thing about my shows is that people say to me, we get to have babies here. So all these actors come and get pregnant immediately because I don't fire them when they get pregnant. I have a party. Yeah. But it should be that way. Yeah. I don't understand why people get punished for doing their work and being pregnant at the same time. Well. But that happens a lot in Hollywood. It happens a lot. Because... Who's making those decisions? Exactly. You know? And you can say, right, you're right. You can say to men, well, do you have kids? And they say yes. And you say, well, how did your wife do? And they say, my wife doesn't work because I made sure that she could stay home for the entire time. And then you say, think about that. Like, think about the options available to people. Okay, fellas. We're (laughs) talking to you now. (laughs) Think about that. That's about empathy. It's about, you know, it's about a whole range of things. But that also gets to who's at the decision-making table. Right. And, I, and I've, been, I've, I've done a lot of conversations over the past several months, and a lot of questions I get from X organization or X industry is that we're working on diversity. What do you recommend we do? And the first thing I recommend is that you make sure that the, the problem-solving table is diverse. Yeah. You know, you are not going to, there, there can't be a room full of men who are going to come up with right answers for how to de- uh, create a work environment that's hospitable to women. 
And so it can't my, be a room full of women. And it can't be a room full of women. The same is through, I mean, for, true for all of us. If we're trying to get anything done and we look around and we all look alike, we're all sitting around the same table and we feel really comfortable with ourselves, we should question that at any table that we're at. And we should be working actively to mix it up so that we're getting a, a, a real broad range of perspectives on, on every issue. But I, you know, shoot, I would see that in, in Congress. I mean, one of the most interesting points, I told you about this, it, usually at the State of the Union address, where, you know, you sit in the balcony and watch the State of the Union. And you know, you, like you do. Yeah, like you do. You know, you, you see it on TV. I'm in the room. You know, but when you're in the room, what you can see is this real dichotomy that on one side of the room, it's, it's also, it's a feeling of color almost. On one side of the room, it's literally gray and white. Literally, that's the color palette on one side of the room. On the other side of the room, there's yellows and blues and whites and greens. They, physically, there's a difference in color, in the tone. Wow. Because one side, all men, all white. <laughs> on the other side, some women, some people of color. And whenever I was sitting, I would always have a guest in that booth. Mm -hmm. And I was always the most embarrassed at the beginning when people would see that. Because I'd say that, is it just me? Am I looking at how governance works? And people look down at that and go, yeah, yeah, that looks good. That looks right. <laughs> we're probably getting a lot done. and We're doing it right. Oh. You know, I look at that and I go, no wonder. No wonder we struggle. No wonder people don't trust politics. It's yeah. not, we're Reflective not even noticing what these rooms look like. But it's not just politics. I mean, I'm sure we can go in any C-suite in this country and we'd see the same thing happening. Yeah. So until we are ready to fight for that, which means some people have to be willing to give up their seats to make room or you need to be ready to add more seats. Mm -hmm. We're gonna, I, I think we're going to continue to struggle um, because if people haven't had the experience of being other and out and you're trying to fix the problems of those folks, it, it's hard to come up with the right answer when you haven't lived it. Stay with me. After the break, we're going to bring you more of this extraordinary conversation between Michelle Obama and Shonda Rhimes from the 2017 Pennsylvania Conference for Women. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize their impact on the world around us. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, bringing you excerpts from yesterday's keynote presentation at the Pennsylvania Conference for Women. Features former First Lady Michelle Obama, who was interviewed by the award-winning television producer, screenwriter, author, and influencer Shonda Rhimes. In the first half of this remarkably frank and insightful conversation, these real-life superheroes talked about how they navigate the same challenges as the rest of us. Work-life integration, imposter syndrome, and as Mrs. Obama so eloquently put it, the small and deep cuts that the world inflicts on women and girls. 
and how these two amazing women came to know and own and use their own power. Um, I loved their thoughts on the challenges and imperatives that we face as we raise the next generation of impactful women, especially given our work here on Women at Work to move more women through the pipeline into positions of power and create more diverse and inclusive workplaces. Um, I hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I did. And as we go into this next segment, um, they're going to pick up on these themes of the responsibilities and power that women have in leadership roles to advocate for those who don't have a seat at the table. Um, And they're going to bring it on home to the challenge of not just how we advocate for others, but how we bridge the gaps at our own kitchen tables, in our own communities, right where we work and live. Um, So after we hear the rest of this conversation, we'll have time for just a few calls. Um, So if you do want to share your reactions, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And now let's pick up where we left off with Michelle Obama and Shonda Rhimes. You talk about a lot, and you've talked about it here, inequality in education in the same way. People don't live it. They don't know what they're doing. But I think everybody always talks about wanting to fix education in some way, and it feels like nobody knows what to do. And we're now under a governance where education is not being run by anybody who has a background in education. What can, what can we as... You know, local people, you're, you're, you're in a school district, we're all parents, or, you're, or you care about what's going on in your neighborhoods. What can people do sort of on the ground, just like one small thing that would help fix schools or help schools in any way or support them? You know, that's t- it's tough. You know, so there are two, two responses I, I have. I mean, the, the biggest change I think that we all can have as individuals is close up. You know, we can impact... Our, our kids, our families, our, our kids' classrooms more powerfully than we can change the education system. And oftentimes that kind of close-up power isn't given its full, you know, sort of due and credit. You know, people always think that if I can't make a big change, and it, and it's a, it, it makes it feel... Uh, as if these problems are not solvable, because no, it, it, it's hard. What do you have to do to change education? You have to have the right governor who cares about your education system, and you've got to have enough money and resources. You've got to pay teachers. You know, you've got to vote. You've got to, you know, um, you have, have to have a state legislature. I mean, a lot of people don't even understand that education is a state issue. It's not who's in the White House, but who's in the state house who makes those determinations. Um, so th- those are big things, and when you say that, people just sort of, glaze they over. shut down and glaze over because that's all. So, but, but that's really the answer because the, the truth is we, we know what good education looks like because a lot of our kids are getting a good education. So it's not like we don't know what good education looks like and how much it costs. <laughs> so it's always a trip, especially when I know how much I'm paying for tuition for my kids and we start second-guessing how much we should be paying for public education, Mm -hmm. so that's part of the problem, you know. We're okay spending $30,000, dollars a year for some kids, but we want to count pennies and talk about taxes when we talk about educating the vast majority of kids. We know what it takes. You know, we know you have to pay teachers. You know, we know you have to value education with salaries and dollars to attract the best talent. We know that. Um, So what can you really do? You can focus on your school. 
and be involved. Um, you know, I know I, I went to an inner city public school and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she was very involved in the PTA. And a lot of the extra programs that we got involved in when something was wrong, there was like this crew of mothers. There were probably only three or four of us. My mom, Mrs. Johnson, and one or two others. And they'd be up at the school all in the principal's face, and they'd be shaking stuff up, the three of them. You know, they'd be listening to what we have to say. And so for a small circle of kids, when I was growing up, there were, there were multi-age programs. They made sure we got access to community colleges and were getting college courses in grammar school. I mean, I say all this to say that this is stuff that mothers did, just as parents through the PTA. Um, and they worked for the kids who didn't have parents. So it wasn't just that they were looking out for us, because my mother would always say there were a lot of friends' parent, mothers who couldn't stay at home. So she was advocating for them. So I, I say don't underestimate the power of what you can do at a small level when you don't feel like you can change the big picture, because that's really all we have. You know, if we're not going to fix education, then you've got to make sure, then you really have to make sure that your kids... Are, are getting what they need and that the teachers are being held accountable by someone. Um, but it's, it's difficult unless you impact the system. It's about showing up and having a relationship with your school. A- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. however big or small you can make it. Right. That's the thing. Right. My mother did that too. No, that's a, another yeah. thing. I was in the suburbs. I was yeah. at a, a very not brown school. Mm-hmm. And I think my mother wanted very much to make sure that I was involved in things and so she took over the PTA and the brownie troop and all kinds of other things and I didn't even notice it but yeah that and that was the thing you didn't even know they were up there cursing out teachers and no whatnot. until afterwards my mother is like yeah I came up there and I said I was like you did mom oh high five <laughs> but it was powerful yeah yeah it helped I always feel like my mother did that thing where she paved the way for me to miss all the obstacles in my path if there yeah. were any yeah. you know that concept Well, that's always something, and we talked about this too, that people overlook the the thing they have most power over, you know? I mean, I know so many people who will go to a protest and do something big on an issue, Mm -hmm. but they won't deal with the same issue in their own home. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where sometimes it feels easier to confront the big picture, right, than to address your husband or your father or whoever. In the case of a, a woman and our right to choose or the decisions we want to make, sometimes it feels easier to go out there and t- take on the big challenge than to confront somebody right in your own space and change a mind. And right change there. a mind right then and there. And to me, that's something that I'm. You know, that I think we all have to explore a little bit. You know, what makes us afraid to make change in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own families? What makes it hard for us to disagree with people in our own lives that are doing the wrong thing, but we're going to go out in the world and expect, you know, I I would have this sometimes when I, you know, do fundraisers for Barack, and there would be women who would say, "We're, we're really upset with your husband's position on this, this, and that. And sometimes I'd be like, well, what's your husband doing? You know? <laughs> because for many of them, I knew their husbands were on the other side of the political issue. Right. I'm like, you over here asking me what my husband's doing. 
but you don't want to confront your husband Mm -hmm. in your own house and you don't agree with him politically. I agree with my husband politically. So it's, it's something I think that, you know, we have to think about is where are we willing to exercise our power? Where are we willing to take risks? What keeps us from, you know, mm-hmm. what, are we, what are we really afraid of? And that's our most valuable way of change, making change with the people who are staring in the face every day. People, you know, look, I always say this, you know, I can't walk into the room and change hearts and minds. I mean, people, you know, have given me compliments about speeches. I gave some passionate speeches in this election, this past election. But look at the outcome. (laughs) You know, I just think that me as a stranger, you know, coming into the lives, I can move people with my words but if I don't know them and they don't know me, it's sort of like what uh, we just heard from Brene. Yeah, what Brene was saying is that you got to get up close to people. Yeah, you know, you got to willing to be close, and the, and and you can't ignore the people who are right in your orbit. You know, and then think you can affect bigger change. So that's why when I always came, came into the White House and I said I was mom in chief, I my the statement that I was making was that. It, I can't help any other kid until I make sure mine are good. That I, I that I, even as first lady, yeah. my very first responsibility to girls' education is to make sure that my girls are sane. You know, because that gives me credit. Because I actually have control over Malia and Sasha. They're my responsibility. What I feed to them, I I have the opportunity to feed stuff to them every day. How I model myself, I am their role model. You know, so I have to do that right before I can tackle the bigger issue. And that's my responsibility to get that right before I can go out in the world and try and change things. And be a role model for anybody else. And be a role model for anybody else if I'm not that for my own girls. They're they're great girls, by the way. They're doing all right. Thank you. They're pretty great. Thank you for that. So far, so good, everyone. (laughs) Really, that's how we all feel as mothers so far. My mother is still saying that about me and Craig. So far, so good. I'm like, Mom, I'm first lady. You can, I think I did okay. She's like, we don't know. Still waiting to see. Still waiting, just hoping I don't mess up. What quote do you live by? Or is there just one? Probably do unto others. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, that would be the thing that would drive me through these eight years. It's like if we could just, you know, again, and I think um, it was said earlier, if we could just see the humanity in one another. You know, the beauty of the, the position I had was that I got to see the humanity of people, even people who didn't agree with us, who were on mm-hmm. a different side of the issue, because we got to be up close to people in a way that most people don't. And if we could just operate with a level of empathy, you know, and give one another the benefit of the doubt just a little bit more. If we just, just, just try to figure out why do you feel that way? Why are you so angry? What are you afraid of? As opposed to pointing and blaming and, and thinking, it's like we are just not that different. Um, so I tend to think about that when I get frustrated or I get patient. What's the thing that keeps me from, from going low, 
Mm-hmm. It's like I have to remind myself, even when I don't agree with people, you know, that's somebody's mother. That's somebody, that's some, somebody is acting from a base of fear that maybe I don't understand. And I have to try to work to, to, to tap into that so that I'm not judging, that I don't reach the wrong conclusion because I felt the sting when people have made judgments about me that weren't true or right or that were off or were based on something like, you know, why, why do you think I would do the wrong thing for this country? Why do you think that I don't care about my country? Why would you think that of me and you don't know me? Well, I learned that that hurts when people do that to you, so I have to be very careful to make sure that I'm not doing that to anybody else who I consider a fellow human. So I, I tend to have that resonate through my mind a lot. I think that's a powerful lesson. That was Shonda Rhimes talking with former First Lady Michelle Obama at yesterday's Pennsylvania Conference for Women. It really was just amazing. Um, Patty and I were there together, and we were just hanging on every word. Um, our phones are open. If you'd like to share your thoughts and your reactions, we'd love to know what moved you most. What don't you agree with? Give us a call and join in the conversation. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. One of the great joys that I have today is being able to bring that conversation, not just to our listeners, but to our team here at Women at Work, who didn't get to come with us to the conference yesterday. Um, One of the things I remember hearing the Obamas talk about, which we've adopted in our own daily routine at home, is what's the worst thing that happened today? What's the best thing that happened today? I think they refer to it as their thorns and roses. Um, So Tatiana, our sound engineer here today, I have a question for you. Sure. As you were listening to that, what were your roses? What were the best parts of that for you? Um, I would say the best parts were when she was talking about um, women being being scared to fail. Yes. And how you don't talk about the things you want to do because it's scared to say it out loud. And if you don't accomplish those things, you're going to feel like a failure. So I completely understood that. And it hit home for you. It did. It's um, and that also there was a part of that where she talked about I think it was Shonda Rhyme saying the difference of somebody saying I want to work for person so and so as opposed to I want to be in that role yeah and I I saw that as a really important paradigm shift along the same lines Mm -hmm. was there anything that struck you as hard or uncomfortable were there any thorns in there for you um any thorns I don't think so. <laughs> she's think, just a super fan. But, yeah, I'm, I'm just know. like everything is amazing. Everything she said was wonderful. <laughs> the thing that got that was um, unnerving for me. I wouldn't say it was a thorn, but cause, I think because it was poignant, it struck home. Is you know I get to talk here about these issues that matter, um, which in some ways is not that different than when we express ourselves in social media. I can put it out there, but I don't see my audience. Um, you know, I marched here in Philadelphia in January, mm-hmm. but I know that. My father voted differently than I did. And I, it's excruciating, painfully painful yeah. to have that conversation with him. And um, how do we advocate for those things we believe in up close and personal? Patty, what was it for you? Well, it was amazing. Um, one of the things that really struck me was how they, they touched on pretty much everything we've discussed on this show. <laughs> so I think we're on the right track. Um, I, I think And so. just... Um, I'll just put it out there live on the air. It's my personal goal to get Michelle in the studio live to talk to us about some of this stuff. So um, uh, it was just thrilling to hear her. Uh, For me, 
I thought it was really great the way, I mean, basically she was saying, you know, she gave this speech, you know, about we go high when they go low. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't do much good because she was preaching to the choir. Right. And that's what I took from that. Um, I think we need to try and understand, just as you were saying about your father, um, why people voted the way they did or, or feel that the way they do about certain issues instead of going in there with, well, I'm right and you're wrong. Right. And um, I'm going to tell you how you're wrong. It was part of why I loved um, what Jennifer Riel was talking about last week when we were talking about integrative thinking. And while it totally like went to the place of design thinking and creative problem solving that I just love so much, it really applies to this bigger issue of if we keep it as binary options, um, we're choosing between two things, one's right, one's wrong, and there's a power struggle, and nobody really wins because we don't solve any of the problems, but that we're not going to solve them unless we have the empathy and compassion to listen to other people. But it's so hard when these ideas feel so personal. Mm -hmm. Tatiana, you're nodding your head. No, I was going to say it. It sounds easy, but it's so hard because <laughs> it is personal. You know what I mean? Did you find that everybody in your world voted the same way? Not the people I worked with um, at my other job, no. And how did you navigate that at the time? I honestly didn't even show up to work November 9th. I was so <laughs> upset. I called out. I, I couldn't be around people I knew who voted for Trump. I just, I couldn't do it. Is Hearing this stuff, these words of wisdom from Michelle and Shonda, or the guests that we have, is it changing at all how you think about that? What, like trying to be more empathetic and understanding where they come from? Yeah. I feel like I kind of, I do get where they're coming from, but they're not understanding like where other people are coming from. Right. Mm. I, Patty? Hi, <laughs> this is Patty, the producer, and I'm going to steer the ship a little bit um, just because we're not really a political show. No, that's true. That's and true. Um, by the way, this is Women at Work on Sirius XM 111, um, hosted by Laura Zara, who's fabulous, <laughs> produced by Patty Hall. Who's also fabulous. And co-produced by our wonderful sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Um, one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about was, um, and Tatiana did touch on it a little bit, was what she talked about about women, those of us that have the seat at the table mm -hmm. to push for others that don't. Yes. Um, I mean, there's so much in what she said. I mean, yeah. what she said about, you know, we can reform education school by school. I mean, I don't know if we'll have time to get back to that. No, there's, it was rich. There's a lot there. But um, as far as, and if you have a seat, use your voice. And if you're not going to use your voice, then move away and give somebody else your seat. Um, and the other thing I loved was... She was a mom. Did you hear her schedule at one point? I think everyone, every woman listening can relate to that. Oh, yeah, totally. She had to take the kids. You know, had to go back and get them, take them home, then go back to work, back then up. come back home. She started at 5 o'clock in the morning and exercised. Because one of the things she talked about was the importance of self-care. Right. And that um, it's not, well, things like exercise can be the one place where we get to take care of us and we get to be selfish. There's something also... Um, tactically and strategically important about taking care of ourselves so that we can maximize our impact and we can function. And her day would start with gym, shower, come home. She's she noted that she's lucky enough to have her mom there, feed the kids, get the kids to school, two different schools, get to work, go to work, come home. You know, that whole part of it, it's like every woman I know who's a parent and works 
deals with that. Yeah. Or who takes care of elderly parents. Mm-hmm. Deals with that all the time. Ding, ding, ding. I was going to say, I got flashbacks to my mom because she would use her lunch break to, like, pick me up from school and, like, take me to, like, after school care and then go right back to work. And, yeah. Yeah, my mom did the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I joke about my mother, but um, I was listening um, to the way Michelle was supported. And there, my mom did give me pride and ambition and like she encouraged me to go for it um she says there's nothing you can't do i mean that was important and um and we talked about this yesterday laura and i just want to mention it the, the little cuts coming yeah i thought that was brilliant and kind of poetic yeah mm-hmm. um the other thing i wanted to mention um we're watching the clock here, folks. Um, you have four minutes to call us. one eight four four warden but that's okay. We'll talk about this again on the show. When Michelle is here live, she'll take questions. Um, was the, the whole flex time issue, and it's yes. the quality of work versus, like, how many hours you work. Um, since we've been doing this show, I am a manager of several employees. It's not a large staff, but seven or eight people. I try to accommodate their the stuff that's going on in their lives besides work Mm -hmm. as much as I can in terms of um, if they need to be at home but they're still doing their work, that's fine with me as long as they're here when they need to be here. Um, And it's sort of... uh, this show makes me work harder to give them more of those opportunities. Patty, that, that I'm actually really touched to hear that and kind of thrilled. Um, Are you finding as a manager that it's becoming more natural to you? Yes, uh, and the show's made me more assertive. It it has made me empathetic when I have to deal with employees that maybe are a little out of whack. I mean, for <laughs> lack of a better term, sorry. Uh, I'm tired. But um, the thing, and you talked about this with Jennifer Real a little bit last week. Um, you can't go in there, and it's the same thing as what Michelle said. You can't go in there all bombastic and I'm right and you're wrong. Think about what the other person is going through. Yeah. And it it's not a weak way to think. It actually helps you talk to them. There's no way you can go in and talk to an employee if you're just going to just come down really hard on them. That's what I've learned. You need to talk to them, well, this happened. Let's talk about why this happened. I'm sorry that you're going through that. How can we make this easier for you? What can we do so this doesn't happen again? You know, it's all coming back to how important it is that we're listening to each other and learning from one another. So, you know, the great gift that I get in hosting the show is that I get to learn from these extraordinary people who come in here every week. Mm -hmm. And um, whether it's the prep work that I do for each show or the conversations, it's all changing the way that I look at things as well. And I think it was that's was reflected in what that whole conference was about yesterday. I don't know if we noticed this, but 12,000 12,000 women came to this conference and its core themes were the very things we've been talking about, which is starting with you from the inside out. How do you take care of yourself? How do you find your own voice? How do you believe in your own power? And then how do you use that power and that voice to positively impact the world around you, which at some point means listening, Mm -hmm. listening to what are the needs out there? What are people's problems? How can you be part of solving them? And then it's like we create, this is something that Melanie Katzman taught us. You know, if you think about that circle of influence and it starts with you, how does it impact 
the very people that you work with every day, the community that you're in, and then a larger circle from there. The power of that ripple effect is enormous. And we saw 12,000 centers of circles yesterday (laughs) getting empowered and informed and importantly connected with each other and finding support for these conversations. And I think that the crowd ranged from women at early stages of career and at these and at the conferences and they're held all over the country. Um, you can go and get resume advice and career coaching, including network for women, networking for women who are in the C-suite. So whether it's you're looking for how to find your voice and leverage the power, or how to take your power to really amplify the voices of other people, because I think that's what one of these core messages is. Um, the opportunities to learn from these people is really extraordinary. Patty, before we sign off, any last words on the conference? No, but I thought it would be nice if we told everyone how they could find out more information about the Pennsylvania <laughs> Conference for Women. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you want to learn more about the conference, you can just go to PA Conference for Women. It's all one word, dot org. And if you'd like to check out any of our past shows um, that talk about today's theme, check us out on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com backslash women at work, where you'll find dozens of conversations about all these important topics. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard, Email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work at SiriusXM111 with my amazing team, Patty Hall, Tatiana Zamis, Jackie Gaffney. We're so happy to have you all here. Thanks for listening and have a great week, everybody. 